This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Well, some breaking news of sorts. Healthcare workers at two long-term care homes are going to start one-day job action. This afternoon, health hospital employees union members will be walking off the job for about six hours at two of Good Samaritan Canada's seven long-term care work sites across the province. This in an effort to reach a settlement after two years of failed collective bargaining. Well, let's uh, bring in a person who knows all about what's happening. This is hot off the press, as they say. Mina Brassard is with the HEU. Good morning, Mina. Tell tell me what's uh, what's happening here. Good morning, Bruce. Uh, what's happening here uh, is that we are um, having limited uh, one-day job action at two of the Good uh, Samaritan uh, Canada sites. Uh, one is at Delta View uh, Care Centre here in Delta, and the other one is at Pioneer Lodge in Salmon Arm. Now, um, Good Samaritan uh, has seven sites that we represent across uh, British Columbia, uh, representing about 1,100 members. And we've been at the bargaining table for about uh, just over two years and uh, just can't get uh, the employer to, to make reasonable offers so that we can uh, conclude collective bargaining. What have you been seeking? What do you want? Well, we're looking at uh, having um, minimal increases to our benefits plan and our ship differential. Uh, Good Samaritan, uh, I'm told, has the lowest uh, uh, benefit uh, in the sector here. So looking at um, minor changes to the benefit plan, but one of the big pieces is that we have uh, no contracting out language in our collective agreement and and the Good Samaritan wants to remove uh, those protections. Now, when we have uh, members walk off the job at two of these long-term care facilities, I would imagine, uh, well, not imagine, it's going to be a reality that other unionized workers are not going to report for work. Is there a plan in place that you know of that uh, keeps the operations going? Or is the union taking direct aim at uh, some of our loved ones? No, absolutely not. Uh, We are here to make sure that uh, there is little or no impact on the residents in care. Uh, the union has designed its job action to ensure continuity of care of the residents. And all of this job action is taking place under an essential services order. Uh, so we need to maintain uh, essential services at the care uh, facilities. Majority of our members will continue to work. Uh, minimal numbers will be off uh, the job and those jobs will be performed by managers on the site. Talking about benefits and things like shifts, what's uh, life right now looking like for HEU uh, workers in long-term care facilities? Not just uh, this company's, but the other ones. Well, we just uh, released a poll uh, two days ago, and uh, we surveyed more than 800 of our carries. 
And this survey really painted an alarming picture of the pressures facing those on the front lines today and of the challenges in retaining and recruiting these essential healthcare workers. And, and this poll found that um, care rates in British Columbia are subjected to high rates of on-the-job violence. Uh, they leave their shifts feeling stressed, and they don't have the time they require to meet uh, the needs of those in care. And something that was very alarming for us is that we found that nearly half of them, uh, 48.5%, are considering leaving healthcare altogether. This is at a time when we're talking about the need for more recruitment for these type of jobs. That's correct. You know, our healthcare workers have been through a difficult and, and stressful time during COVID, and they've been working long hours, lots of overtime, and often doing it while they're short-staffed. So we really need to, to continue to work with, with government, with health employers, and find new ways of recruiting and retaining uh, healthcare workers because we really need uh, that to help out on the front lines. Now, this one action that's taking place this afternoon, what do you hope to get out of it? Uh, who's uh, at the table, if anyone? Are you willing to be at the table? Uh, what about the employer? Yeah, we've been uh, talking with the employer and trying to get uh, back to, to the bargaining table, but we need them to come back uh, and be serious about getting a deal. What we have here in British Columbia is a fragmented healthcare uh, system when it comes to seniors' care. We are looking to have one collective agreement for all healthcare workers that are in long-term care, like we did back in the early 2000s. And that would give us stability uh, in the sector, and it would make sure that all workers have the same wages, benefits, and working conditions. And if we have better working conditions for our members, that means we're going to have better caring conditions for the seniors. Got your brothers and sisters in the NDP. I thought they were labor-friendly. How come you can't get them to go along with this idea of one collective agreement? Well, they are labor-friendly, and they've done a lot uh, to help with seniors' care. Uh, I think that um, they really have taken some steps to improve working and caring conditions, but they still haven't addressed the root of the problem, and that is making sure that we have a care system with common working and caring conditions. We'll continue to, to lobby this government, and we know that this is the right thing to do for workers, but it's also the right thing for seniors and their families. What are we looking at in the future for uh, long-term care? Are you optimistic? I'm very optimistic. I know that uh, we have a lot of um, caring um, staff members, caring workers, and uh, we want to have a long-term fix for long-term care. And we'll uh, continue, again, to, to work with health employers, to work with this government, to ensure that uh, these, these uh, seniors get uh, the care that they deserve. And we're able to provide that care that we want uh, and need to provide. Do you think that there is a time or a need right now for perhaps a different model in how uh, long-term care is run in the province? Well, like I said earlier, the, the system is fragmented and we need to bring it uh, all together. And that is by restoring uh, standard working and caring conditions. And, you know, if we go back uh, to the early 2000s, we had that system where carries and, and other workers were covered by one collective agreement, no matter if they worked in publicly funded for profit, not for profit care, a healthcare authority run care facility or a hospital. And 
they all had uniform wages and their working and caring conditions were comparable, but that was dismantled by the previous government. And now we need to go back and, and fix that system. So what happened? Why was it dismantled, do you think? I know you're, you know, you can't jump into the mind of a previous government, but what was the concern at the time? Um, well, they wanted to privatize uh, the healthcare system, and they were able to do that. Um, and now we have this system that needs to be fixed. We're seeing, as our, our poll is saying, uh, you know, half of our carriers that we surveyed are, are thinking of leaving uh, the system altogether. And that's due to heavy workloads, working, working short, and excessive uh, overtime. So we really need to have uh, a healthy uh, approach to hiring. Uh, we need uh, uh, to bolster our health human resources strategy and make sure that we get uh, the workers uh, into the system and that uh, we retain them and uh, recruit the next uh, future generation of healthcare workers. We're talking with Mina Broussard with the Health Employees Union as her members are out on uh, one-day labour action uh, this afternoon at two long-term care facilities. Mina, if uh, this does not get resolved, there is a strong possibility, I would imagine, that you're going to be locked out. What do you think of that? I don't think uh, this employer is going to lock us out. I think uh, they really recognize the essential work that our members provide, and we need to make sure that we have the continuity of care uh, for uh, these residents in these care homes. Uh, we are speaking with Good Samaritan Sam, and we hope to get them back to uh, the bargaining table uh, with a skilled negotiator in the coming weeks. So I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to achieve uh, a deal at uh, the bargaining table. Oh, as I said, this is breaking news uh, this morning, and uh, thank you so much for keeping us uh, up to date and reaching out and uh, letting us know about this development. Mina, all the best to you. Great. Thanks, Bruce. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Something to think about as you enjoy a glass of wine tonight. Certainly a topic for discussion. At a public hearing yesterday, Vancouver City Council gave the green light to some changes to the rules to allow the sale of wine on shelves in grocery stores in Vancouver. Yeah, that means stores larger than 10,000 square feet that have the provincial wine store license and a municipal business license now may sell wine on shelves, provided they meet all the provincial government requirements. That's an interesting move, but it's also one that brings Vancouver in line with municipalities right around the area, around the region. Let's bring in Krista Lee McWaters, 
She's the chair of the WGBC Board of Directors and the general manager of Time Family of Wines. Good morning, Crystal Lee. Good morning, Bruce. You know, I've got to ask this question. What does this mean for the small wine shops around Vancouver? Those specialty shops, are they even going to survive given some new large-scale competition? Yes, absolutely. The smaller boutique styles are specialized in more boutique-style wines, the hard-to-find wines, and there's really something for everyone here. This isn't going to radically change the the face of how you purchase wine because there is a moratorium on licenses. So there's not going to be any new licenses. So any operator will have to have already had a license or purchase a license and relocate it. So it's not going to, to radically change things. For many of us who live in the suburbs, we've known for quite a quite a time that you could go into a certain grocery store and, you know, especially if you want BC wine, find something of your liking. You've also got the ability to go into those private stores and maybe get a little bit more advice, maybe a different conversation and uh, buy something there. What was it about Vancouver that uh, they had some concerns that uh, this was not the model to be? Um, That's a good question, actually. Uh, You know, every municipality is a little bit different. I think that they were uh, originally concerned with, um, just as you were saying, with the other stores and also increased uh, licenses, which isn't the case. And um, there was a lot of uh, backlash as far as, you know, being another liquor store and alcohol, but that's not what this is. This is wine on shelf in grocery. So this is, um, you know, primarily British Columbia VQA wines. So it is not, you know, you won't see a liquor store inside a grocery store. That is not what this is. Now, my experience in going into some of the grocery stores outside of Vancouver is it's not primarily BC wine. It is all BC wine. Is that what's going to happen here? Yes, it is. Exactly. And why is that? How did that ever come around? I, I forget the back history or the back story on that. Absolutely. So the licenses that are operated in, for instance, Save on Foods, are actually liquor licenses that are owned by Wine Growers British Columbia. So the industry owns those licenses. And then it's a third-party arrangement that we have to operate the stores with Save on Foods. You know, to me... And maybe this is, you know, color might naive on this one, but I travel all over uh, the world uh, and certainly a lot down to the States. And, you know, you can buy wine everywhere. We seem so overly regulated when it comes to wine. And uh, it just bewilders many people that I know that come to visit from other places where they uh, go into a grocery store and can't buy wine, period, let alone BC wine. Uh, why do you think we're really kind of a, a little overly conservative here? What's going on? Um, <laughs> obviously, being the producers, we would like it. In, we would like it in more outlets and more sales channels. Absolutely, I think this was a good opportunity for the provincial government to, um, you know, test the waters and to to see how it works without completely opening up. The floodgates, I think, is a, a responsible way to have done it. It also secures 
you know, the private liquor stores as well and the amount of capital that they've put into building their business that, you know, not a big box store right around the corner and every corner will um, be able to compete with them. So I think it's a nice mix of what we have in British Columbia. Is it step one en route to something else now that we've got the city of Vancouver opening this up to grocery stores? Do you think there is going to be another step? Uh, I don't believe so. At this point, there's a moratorium on licenses in British Columbia uh, for the a number of years. So, I, no, I don't think that you'll see this, it, not in the short term anyway. What would you like to see coming from an industry perspective? Yeah, well, we're we're excited for this. Um, you know, Vancouver is, is our largest market for BC VQA wines. And what this really does allow is a lot of the small and medium producers it allows them another uh, sales channel. Sometimes it's hard to get access into the BC liquor stores for the smaller wineries, um, you know, uh, licensed retail stores, private stores throughout the province. They're generally a smaller footprint, so that can be a challenge too. So for smaller wineries, this really gives us the opportunity to be able to showcase our wines where our consumers are and living right in Vancouver. So we're really excited about that. Okay, let's talk about those uh, consumers for me, going into a uh, grocery store, do I have any chance of seeing any more competition that's going to um, lower down the price or keep the price from going up as high as it has been? Is this going to have any impact whatsoever on price? No, I don't believe that it will. As I said, there's not like there's magically more licenses, so it would just be relocating one. Um, the Savon generally uh, sells at wine, close to winery direct pricing. Uh, it's the wineries that, that control the wholesale price that they sell it to. And when it comes to BC producer, what are you hearing? Are they uh, aware of this move in Vancouver? Does it make a hill of bean of difference then if uh, all the licenses are the same number? Um, it, you know, for us, it is a good thing um, because hopefully there will be one that moves into the city. And as I said, gets to a little more of our um, consumer base and where our market is. But it's not going to make a radical change to the industry. Okay. Krista Lee, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Bruce. Well, yesterday, B.C. Conservative leader John Rustad went on X and posted this. Just voted no against Bill 35, which tramples homeowners and municipalities. NDP Premier David Eby has no business telling you what you can and cannot do with your property. Fix failing NDP rental policies, get out of the way of municipalities, and leave hardworking homeowners alone. John Rustad is with us now. Thanks for joining us, John. Good morning to you. Bruce, thanks for having me on today. Um, I think that, uh, well, you've got plenty of responses. By the way, 70,000 views on this. Boy, you're a social media powerhouse, John. <laughs> well, you know, we just want to put out there, uh, you know, be very clear about who we are and, and what we stand for. And, of course, there are the expected responses here. Some of them are uh, fully in support of what you're saying. Some are against. But uh, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, we know we've talked about this. There is a housing crisis in the province. Um, is this a bad look, as some people have said, for you saying uh, no to the short-term rental uh, bill? Well, the reason for voting against this uh, this particular bill 
is really this authoritarian approach that David Eby and the NDP are taking, because he's gone after the rights now of homeowners and landowners. He's gone after the rights of parents and grandparents who are concerned about uh, the innocence of their children. He's gone after the rights of healthcare workers and bullied them. He's gone out, you know, attacking the rights of municipalities. You know, Surrey, he's gone after their democratic rights. This is a very authoritarian government. They are um, resorting to bully tactics to just implement what they want to do. And I think it's enough is enough. I really think that your government needs to be able to respect people and respect communities. There is that. Uh, and I said this on Wednesday. For for me, I think that there was maybe enough consul, not enough consultation with uh, some of the people that have Airbnbs. I mean, these are not necessarily, as I said, rich people sitting back in their lazy boy chairs, eating bonbons and coming down hard on uh, on those in a housing crisis. They're small homeowners that want to pay or cover a mortgage. But more than that is it just is not going to work. Well, I look at it, really, um, we have a, a absolute failed housing policy in this province. The NDP have made everything they've touched worse. Housing is just a prime example of it. Uh, rental housing in particular, they have made it so difficult now that nobody wants to rent out their place. Um, people don't want to build new rental units. And so what do they do? Instead of admitting they have failed policies and fixing the damage that they've done, they're down going off to Airbnb. And there may be a case in, in some places because, you know, some people have said we'd, we'd much rather rent by the month um, under an Airbnb than, than to use the, the rental system because of what this government's done. But that is not the Airbnb's problem. That is a problem which government policy. And like I say, bullying people, uh, bullying landlords, bullying uh, you know people that are just trying to make ends meet, uh, and this authoritarian approach is not what British Columbia needs. John, if not Bill 35, what is the approach? What should have been priority number one here? Well, I think this goes, this goes back and, you know, it has to undo years now of, of government's neglect. But, I mean, we need to be able to support um, people to be able to afford to rent. I mean, rents have gone absolutely through the roof. Um, however, we also need to make sure that people are building rental units and making rental units available. And you don't do that by telling the uh, the people that maybe want to invest and they'll make that that available for uh, for renters that uh, you know sorry here's the rules and you have to stick by it. You have to actually create an environment where people want to invest in this province, and that is exactly the opposite of what this government has done. I don't think much more can be said uh, on that. I understand where you're coming from on it. Uh, I do want to ask this question, and uh, you must be feeling good today. After this Angus Reid poll coming out, showing uh, your party under your leadership, the B.C. Conservatives, neck and neck tied with B.C. United. What's going right for well, you? You know, I, I think let's, we're building a grassroots movement. Uh, we're just being clear in our positions and what we're trying to do, standing up uh, for what's right and fighting for the average everyday person. And I think what people are looking at is, you know, they're, they're not happy with what this NDP is doing and their authoritarian approach. And the, the odd thing is the United Party is voting for virtually in favor of government on virtually everything they're doing. And so there, people are looking at whether it's the United Party or the NDP and saying, you know, we've had enough. It's been 30 years 
uh, of this types of politics, and they want a choice. They want something that's different. And I think that's why we're connecting with people. Okay, last hour I was talking with Bill Thielman about this, and I put this forth, and I want to get your take on this, and perhaps you can even tell me something that's a little bit more newsworthy. I think that there may be more defections, especially in the BC interior, coming from BC United right over to your party. Are you talking with folks, and uh, are you about to get some more members uh, joining you in caucus? I have had a few conversations, uh, but I also realize that it is extremely difficult for somebody to leave the party that they're part of and to walk across the floor. It doesn't happen very often. It's actually quite rare in politics. And so, you know, my door is open. Uh, Certainly, um, I'm interested in having conversations with people that might be interested. But at this point, um, you know, I'm not expecting uh, anything, you know, dramatic to happen. Uh, What I do think, uh, I know that there's lots of internal fighting within the United Party. And, you know, I feel bad for some of my former colleagues, but I suspect that, uh, you know, they're going to have a bit of a leadership crisis, quite frankly, because, you know, Kevin Falcon's just not connecting with people. Are you making any secret deals? No, I'm not. Uh, one of the things I want to make sure as a Conservative Party is that we want to be very open with everything we're doing. It's one of the reasons why when I look at things like freedom of information, um, the government needs to be far more open with the data that they have, and we're going to have a very strong policy around that. Just because, you know, I think, I think people are tired of the secrecy. You know, EB is, has signed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of non-disclosure agreements there operating in the shadows and i think people are tired of it they want to see something that's going to be different okay well thanks for your time john thank you very much for having me on today you mean to tell me we can make a super pub for homie at the top of jack's beanstalk but we cannot make a 3x That is the voice of Lydia Okello on TikTok talking about the lack of uh, availability for plus sizes, even at Aritzia, even though Aritzia has taken to a display trying to position itself as offering more of these options. We welcome Lydia this morning. Lydia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. As a Vancouver-based model and writer for Vogue, you've expressed an interest in these sort of, uh, you know, offerings that might be in displays, but also for customers of plus sizes. What do you think? What are your thoughts on Aritzia's massive uh, super puff display? Uh, I mean, first off, I just kind of had to laugh. Um, For those who haven't seen it, the jacket is very oversized like it would not fit any human person of any size in its uh, dimensions and so i found it very interesting that a store like aritzia whose customer base have for quite a long time asked for extended sizing for more sizing for plus sizing would display a jacket that is so big that no one can wear it but not want to include actual clothing for larger folks within their store um so I, I definitely, I thought there was quite a contrast there and uh, in some ways a humorous one, but in other ways a more nefarious one, um, because I think it reflects the fashion industry's position towards plus size customers and fat customers. And I almost uh, wonder what's going on here. I see the picture and I wish I could describe it the best 
possible way. <laughs> but it is huge. It takes up an entire window pane, this jacket. And if I was to look at, um, you know, an option that's over size 16 or an XXL and see this as a jacket, um, I might think to myself, are they making fun of me? Uh, what's going on? And then to find out there are very few options, period. Is this kind of typical of what's happening in a certain segment of fashion when it comes to uh, offerings? I mean, I think it just reflects uh, a lot of fashion as a whole. Um, we've definitely made a lot of strides. I would say there's way more plus-size clothing available on the market right now than there was even 10 years ago. But the average North American woman is a size 14, 16 or larger. And about uh, 8 to 10%, I think, of clothing that's offered on the market is in plus sizing. So we have a big imbalance there, right? We're seeing that almost 70% of the population would fit extended sizing, and yet only 10% of what's in stores is available to them. Um, and from a business standpoint, I believe that it would be very profitable to cater to those customers, and the numbers reflect that as well. Plus size clothing is one of the biggest growing sectors in fashion, but we see many large profitable, very equipped companies ignoring that customer segment, ignoring extended sizing, ignoring plus size customers. And to me, that reflects the fat phobia of the fashion industry. It's not a matter of not being able to make the sizes. It's not a matter of people wanting the sizes. It's a matter of not wanting people in bigger people in that clothing. Yeah, one would think the numbers are certainly there, and we know what the customer base would potentially be. And I think you touched on this brand idea um, that I don't know if Aritzia is the only one, but in the fashion industry, you have so many offerings for people of a certain size and not too many for the XXL or the size 16 and above. Mm-hmm. Is you know it's it's 2023. I thought that we kind of already solved this, but apparently not. You know, uh, like I said, we've made many improvements, but we have so far to go because it's a customer segment that's so underserved, right? So we have a lot of catching up to do, and unfortunately, um, especially with you know more difficult economic times. I've seen a lot of businesses actually roll back the size inclusivity efforts that they've made, and they posit that as a financial decision. But to me, as a person, as a consumer, and as a fashion insider, industry insider, I think it's reflecting something that's a bit darker. It's uh, they're rolling back to how it used to be, where thin is in, and we don't accept anybody else. Um, and that's really sad, and that's really frustrating, and. It makes me, I don't know, I, I, as, a, as just a person who loves clothing and, and personal style, it, I find it extremely frustrating. And as someone who works in fashion, it's hard to receive the feedback that no one's going to buy that size when the size that they're talking about is actually your size. Yeah, Lydia, let's talk about that darker side to this. And I think there is one that's quite legit. You as a model and a writer for Vogue, Um, you're very much aware of uh, images. Are Mm -hmm. we still in a society, do you think, right now, 
And is the commercialization still looking at um, looking for a certain image that really people want to be, meaning that it is a smaller size? Is that what's being celebrated? And all the rest of every embracing the larger sizes, the XXL, the 16 plus, that's more virtue signaling than anything else? Hmm. I think it's a mix. Um, there's definitely companies and brands that really have taken that feedback, put it into the way that they operate, and genuinely show up for plus-size folks. Those brands do exist. Unfortunately, they're often quite small. They're stretched quite thin, and they don't have the resources that a brand like Aritzia has. Um, on the flip side of that, I think... We do see a few more um, plus-size models and, you know, people of different sizes or races or abilities in fashion media or in fashion marketing. But we recently had a fashion week um, in September. There was fashion weeks across, you know, Europe and North America. And there was a report on how many plus-size and mid-size models were on the runway versus uh, smaller models. And for this season... I think the number was actually 5% or plus or mid-size. And as far as plus-size, so over a size 14, it was less than 1% were in that size range. So as much as uh, we want to believe that people are more open and more accepting and more inviting to different types of beauty, the industry isn't really reflecting that. You know, the industry isn't really reflecting what the public actually Okay, let me use my magic wand. Let's say, Lydia, I do have a magic wand, was able to tap that, and you're now at the board of directors. Um, You're a board member, and you're able to give counsel and advice based on being a model and being a writer and being glued to this industry. What would you say to those that are arguing, hey, we've got an image to uphold. This is who we're about. What would you be telling them? What's your counsel? I think I would politely disagree. That image never really existed, not for people in the world. And, you know, when you move through the world day to day, you see many different types of folks and you see beauty in so many different ways. And it's a very narrow-minded view. It's a very limiting view. And I think that it's a bad business decision. I think if I were put in that position, my hopes would be that there would be significant marketing to groups outside of that beauty ideal, right? So really putting in the time and the work to reach plus-size customers, to show clothing on plus-size people, to invite plus-size customers to shop in-store, which all of those things are quite lacking right now, even when brands do carry extended sizing. They often make it online only. They often do not show it on their social media or through marketing. So that customer doesn't even know that you are trying to cater to them. So when that launch fails and the onus is put on the customer saying, well, the sales were low, so why would we make these clothes? I don't think that's a fair reflection. Um, And I would hope that companies that are trying to make those changes internally would invite, you know, fat folks to work with them, to advise them, to help them, you know, navigate a market that maybe they're not familiar with because we're here. And we, when we find things that we like, we are definitely spending our money. And there are many of us. So 
I, yeah, I would hope that... Um, you use the term fat. Yes, I use the term fat. Sorry, I should define that for me, fat is a neutral descriptor. So when I say fat, I'm not, it does not feel negative to me and I don't perceive it as a negative descriptor. Okay. As a model, do you have any suggestions for other plus size people uh, that want to look good and still need to go out shopping and feel that they are not in a world of options while you advocate for more options, what can they do? What, what's your advice? What's your comforting word for them? Uh, there's definitely a lot of um, really great... Can you still hear me? I certainly can. Okay, good. Sorry, there was an incoming call. Uh, I definitely think that a great place to start is following, you know, fat fashion folks or plus size fashion folks. So there's tons of influencers. I work as a content creator and influencer. Um, so that is a great way to just see people who reflect you and see people who are living happy lives as plus size folks. Um, as far as shopping, there's definitely a lot of great Canadian options. Here in Vancouver, we have a shop called Metal's Tale. They make their own clothing and they also carry uh, from size extra small to 4X in-store. So if you want somewhere to just shop in-store and feel comfortable and invited, that's a great place to go. Um, some other brands that I really like that have extended sizing are uh, Seek Shelter, which is based in Courtney. There's a brand called Ray NYC, which is from New York, which does sizes extra small to 6X. So they have quite a broad range. Um, and that's in everything. All of the items are made in those sizes. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there are tons of options on the market. Unfortunately, most of them are online and not in person. So that is a bit of a hurdle. But there are brands who see us. There are brands who cater to us. And there are brands who understand that we just want good clothes just like anyone else Lydia you've put a lot of thought into this and you can tell that in your answers you're very passionate about it and I wish you all the best in your endeavors to change things for the better thank you so much for your time thank you so much for having me thanks for listening to the Mike Smith show podcast can't wait for the latest episode to drop tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment send me an email mike at cknw.com thanks again for listening